1: all scripture is useful for teaching, correcting, and training unto righteousness. We take uh, the holy scriptures as important in city church. So at the end of my reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and I will urge you to respond, thanks be to God. Our reading today is taken from John 12, John chapter 12, from verse 1 to 12, and then we'll jump to 20, verse 20 to 26. I read, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of the pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold, and the money given to the poor? Is it worth a a year's wages? He did not see this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself with what was put in it, Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor amongst you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. On account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him the next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that jesus was on his way back to jerusalem verse 20. now there were some greeks among those who went up to worship in the festival they came to philip who was from bethsaida in galilee with a request sir they said we would like to see jesus philip went to tell andrew and andrew philip in turn told jesus My father will honor the one who serves me. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thank you very much for the reading, Ted. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you here. Um, So for the purpose of those who have been coming, uh, who have not, who have come for the first time, or maybe you're just coming for the second time, welcome to City Church. We are been going through a series which is um, trying to find the person of Jesus or know the person of Jesus better through the book of John. Now, today is the eighth, I think, no, the ninth. Eighth. All right, who's counting anyway? But um, we have are, 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 are been going through this, and we've been seeing more and more about Jesus. And what we're finding now is the more we're learning about Jesus, we're actually learning about ourselves. And so at this point, we are now in the 12th chapter of the book of John. And we come to this a very, very decisive um, turn because things are going to rapidly change. Really, the book of John, you can say 1 to um, 10, well, 1 to 4 is one section, 5 to 10 is another section. In 1 to 4, we see Jesus and John the Baptist actually um, crisscrossing. 5 to 10, there's opposition from the Jews. And then 11 to 12, There's this turn that is then going to lead us to the final section, which is 13 to 21. Now, in in chapter 11, Jesus has performed the greatest sign of all. You know, he's been healing people before, but now he's raised Lazarus from the dead. We find that in verses 38 to 44. And after that, the Jews have really had it, you know. It's as though when his sign had reached the crescendo, they then um, firm up their plans to actually kill him. And so we want to look at what um, the text that's been given to us here, we want to talk about following Jesus. And uh, we've come to read something that I think is very, very instructive in this topic. Now, let me start with this. I don't know how many of us know, um, I'm sure all of us know, but the name Obafemi Aulo. Now, Obafemi Aulao was one of the founding fathers of the independent Nigeria. He was a brilliant legal mind, an astute political philosopher, a deaf politician and very, very remarkable visionary. In fact, I'm sure you've heard this. A lot of people say he was the best president Nigeria never had. Now, with that kind of greatness, or when you have great people like that, often what do you have after them? You have their followers. And Awolo has or had and has a lot of followers. Now, how would you identify an Awolo follower? Well, most people will say, the thing you can remember most about Auloa, apart from his very round spectacles, will be what? Yeah. His cap. And so we have a lot of politicians that don his cap now. Our vice president is one of them. Um, I know a particular president who lives in Ikoyi. He used to before, but now he's actually trying to create his own followership, and so he's no longer wearing Auloa's cap, but we will not name his name to protect the guilty. But. If you are just wearing Aulawa's cap, at least the symbolic uh, statement of that means something, but others will tell you that the mere fact that you're identifying with someone symbolically doesn't mean that you are his follower. In fact, actually, you would say that it's not just enough to follow Aulawa by wearing his cap, but did you adhere to his philosophy, like uh, this uh, progressive, African progressive uh, philosophy, which some have dubbed Awoism? In other words, if you are not a progressivist, you can't just say, because I'm not corrupt, I'm a follower of our law. Now, if you're not corrupt, that would be following his example. So symbolically, following his example in nature, his character, but also adhering to the principles that he laid down, that is what will make you a true follower of his. Now, in the same way, we have to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Does it merely mean that I attend church? Does it merely mean that I do not lie? Does it merely mean that I do not have sex before I get married? Or is there a whole lot more to it? Now, in this passage, we are brought into the issue of, and the title of this message basically is sacrificial followership. And key to that is the issue of humility, the issue of humility. Now, if we want to be a kind of church who says that we want to keep the gospel at the center, we have to be concerned in being a church who are a community of Christ followers in truth. I think this passage has a lot to tell us about that. So we're looking at uh, sacrificial followership, but in particular, we're talking on the issue of humility. So I want us, because this virtue, like many virtues, sometimes is often misunderstood. So John is going to teach us, by looking at the life of Jesus about sacrificial followership. So we'll look at that under three headings. Uh, They'll go this way. Humility defined, humility demonstrated, and humility vindicated. Humility defined, humility demonstrated, and humility vindicated. So let's start with the first one, humility defined. Now, I don't know if you've noticed the evolution of, Football celebration. So a guy scores a goal, and he celebrates in a particular way. Now, when I was growing up, usually what would happen is someone scores a goal, and then he jumps, you know, he throws his hand in the air in a very, very awkward manner. He kind of makes like three jumps. That wasn't really cool. And then there was a huge shift when you got to 1994 World Cup. 1994 World Cup, where you had people like Romario, right, it now became, who could outdo the other person in, you know, you had your own particular style. I don't know if many of you remember Mario. Mario scored five goals in uh, six, five, five goals in the 1994 World Cup, right? He used to do his hand a bit like this, something like that. But his teammate, Beberto, actually outdid him. The very first celebration that we had with a child, you know, he, he just had a baby, so he scored. He went to the corner and then started doing something like this. But there was something about those, at least, uh, the likes of Bebeto, You kind of, it it meant that your team came together. You celebrated with your team. And after that, a lot of people started doing different things. Very, very creative things. You had, um, um, well, okay, well, Finiti George. Well, that that was a little bit uh, over the top. (laughs) But with the Romario strain, you also had another emerging one, which was focused on the individual. Maybe you can even say Roger Miller was the very first person to start that in 1990. You go around, you do a bit of a shimmy, and everybody actually starts to copy that. And you now get, I think, the pinnacle of it all is the 2014 um, Champions League final. So Real Madrid are playing Atletico Madrid. Atletico Madrid are 1-0 up up until the 90th minute. Eventually, um, Sergio Ramos equalizes. They go into extra time. Real Madrid scores a second goal. Ronaldo hasn't scored, there's a problem. Ronaldo just scored the third goal, Ronaldo hasn't scored, there's a problem. And then they got a penalty, guess who's going to take the penalty? Ronaldo. And Ronaldo scores, and eventually what does he do? Who remembers? He takes off his shirt and he then shows us his ultimate physique. Like, you know, the, the Uberman, the Superman. And in that moment, Ronaldo is telling us something. That's humility personified, isn't it? Or rather not. You see, in one stream of things, we have come into a situation in our, in our culture that to be humble, actually, is actually seen as a bad thing, at least in vain culture. You, you still see a lot of footballers today, you know, once they score they numero uno, they're hitting their chest, there is something about showing forth yourself. Being, you know, being the the alpha male, they call it. But if you follow trends, particularly in the West, in the fields of psychology and business, it's all of a sudden sexy to be humble again. So for instance, in the Journal of Positive Psychology, here's what they say. There was a particular article recently in 2015, and it says this, that Humility, so it suggests this about humility. All right, so let me just put it there. The Journal of Positive Psychology suggests that this lovely quality, that's humility, is good for us individually and for our relationships. For example, humble people handle stress more effectively and report higher levels of physical and mental well being. Who would have guessed? Humble people show Better, higher levels of physical and mental well-being. Now, that's psychology. Look at business. Now, this is from a study conducted by the University of Washington Foster School of Business. It found that humble people tend to make the most effective leaders and are more likely to be high performers in both individual and team settings. Now, what's going on here? How come humility is coming back? You know, it's coming through. We know after the 2008 recession that all of a sudden, you know, in the business schools, all of a sudden they started teaching their ethics uh, classes all over again because they said, well, what crashed the financial system was greed. And so they're like, oh, we we have those departments of ethics. What are they there for? Let me come out now. And here you are seeing these studies that are saying, it actually pays to be humble. The question, though, is, What is humility? What is humility? Now, let me start from a secular writer, a very good writer, David Brooks, for the New York Times. He says, and I like this definition, humility is radical self-awareness from a position of distance. Radical self-awareness from a position of distance. Jesus Christ says in verse 25, basically anyone who loves his life, uh, anyone who hates his life in this world is humility. They're both saying the same thing. Now, let's not get too extreme. When he says that anyone who hates his life, he's not advocating self-loathing. He's not saying you should truly hate yourself. What he's doing is um, he's using a Semitic idiom, basically, and he's trying to compare something. So he's comparing two things, and the one that is preferred less is the one. Sorry, stop sending me text. Who is that? All right, the one that is um, preferred less is the one that he's saying... You should hate. Now, at the core of humility, therefore, is self-awareness. Or now, let me speak in the opposite. At the core of the opposite of humility, which is pride, is not the fact that you think that you are nobody. No. Or not the fact that you think that you are so worthless. The opposite of humility is not low self-esteem. The opposite of humanity, which is pride, has at its root self-centeredness, or self-absorption, or self-preoccupation. So that is whether or not you aggrandize yourself, you think you are the best thing since sliced bread, or you think you are the worst thing since, I was going to bring a particular politician to, but we shall not do that, but it's not Hating yourself, or it's not loving yourself alone, it is that you are so preoccupied with yourself. That is what pride is, and the opposite to humility. Now, we know proud people, don't we? We've been we've 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 encountered quite a few of them. I'm sure none of us here will say that we are proud, but let's try this test. You know that. Family, let, let's say you had, we had an outing. Let's say, at City Church, we had an outing. Or maybe in your office, you had an outing. And they were taking pictures. And now, that the, the group photos are out. They put it on a folder, a shared folder, where all of us can see. And then you go to that photograph. When you say the photograph is not very, very good, you say the photograph is not very good, your colleague said, ah, this photograph is very, very good. What's the problem? When you look at the photograph, who is the first person you are looking for? Yourself, isn't it? How many of us would identify that? All right, so all of you that raised up your hand, right? You are proud. All of you that didn't raise up your hand, you are not only proud, you are liars. Because we all know it. We are all tuned to actually think about ourselves first. And now, some of the attributes, let me give four characteristics of people who are proud. One, they are terrible listeners. Have you ever met some of us? Maybe you dated, and maybe your husband is still like that. You dated a particular, well, you you didn't date a, a particular guy. A guy showed interest in you. Somebody hooked you up with a particular guy. And within two minutes of your conversation, you start talking. And then, he starts telling you everything about himself about this particular contract that he's doing, and then this particular school that he went, and then you are trying to even bring in a particular conversation, he says, yes, that even reminds him of when he also went to this particular thing over and over and over again. Now, that person is very, very confident, but what about the person that tells you, if you know what I've suffered in life, and this one person did this to me, and this other person did this to me, what happens really, and we have this as a problem in a lot of marriages, One of the other person is always too preoccupied with themselves that you are unable to listen to the other person. It even happens in arguments. When you're arguing with someone, the person is making their point. You've just made your own point, so the person is countering that point. Guess what's happening when the person is speaking to you? You are really just thinking about the next thing you are going to say. You're not really listening to the person. Why? Because you are so preoccupied with yourself. Another characteristic is that proud people don't have a big problem admitting their errors. Even when you are found to be totally, look, you are the one that actually messed up. 90% of the time, you know how you say, I'm oh, sorry. Well, I'm sorry if you are upset by what I said. What? If, you are, if I'm upset? Excuse me. Did you do something wrong or not? Or there's a, typical, there's a typical, you know, we men. Now, we know how to do it. You upset your wife. You messed up. Big time, you messed up. And I'll go next to her. So somebody can't even play with you again. Are <laughs> ah, you not angry. Ah uh <laughs> Don't worry. It to know we didn't see that. We know, we know family doesn't do that. Now, we laugh at it, but that is very, very hurtful. You can't bring yourself to the position to say that I actually messed up. I actually didn't do what was right, and let me fix it. It's very difficult for you to admit that I was in the wrong here because that does something to you. You are so preoccupied with yourself. Even more, another characteristic is proud people are very stingy. Ah, if you know all my expenses, you will understand why I can't do this thing. Or whether it's not with your money, it's even with your time. If you know all I can commit, uh, my commitments, you'll see why I can't commit to this now. I would like to come, but you know, it's so much stressful coming to that your place. These people just wear me out. Because you are so preoccupied with your comfort, you are so preoccupied with your bank balance, you know that. It's not just the fact that you want it to be at a safe level. You want it to be at a safe level before it gets to that safe level. Why? Because you are so preoccupied with yourself. One more. Proud people are not grateful. They are ingrates. The moment somebody does something for you, You say, thank you, but if you're telling somebody that, well, that person did something for me, the next thing you say is, yeah, that person did something for me, but actually what happened was, before that person did something for me, I had actually done something for them as well. Do you understand? You're almost trying to say that, of course, this person has to reciprocate to me. Do you know all the things I've done for that person? You always focus on the particular contribution you made, rather than, even if it was small, the one that somebody actually put. And all leads to a particular thing. Proud people are very difficult to be around because they really don't care about you. They are focused on themselves. And so that particular definition of humility comes back again. Radical self-awareness from a position of distance or from a position of other-centeredness. Now, Jesus says, this kind of life is ultimately destructive. Anyone who loves their life will do what? Will lose it. Now, what does true humility then look like? That takes me to my second point, and we want to look at this story that was told to us about Jesus. It's a very, very awkward thing. Yeah, humility demonstrated, verses 1 to 8. The setting is very, very it's a normal thing. A, a, a party was being held in Jesus' honor. And in that time, it was customary to have a particular dignitary. you throw a party for the dignitary. The men sat down, they were reclining on the table. By reclining on the table, it means that they would lean on their left, and then they spread their legs outside. And so whilst they're doing that, you can understand when it says that the woman there is able to clean his legs, because his legs are on the outside and she is on the outside there. And then she does something. In verse 3, it says, Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. Now, when it says an expensive perfume there, John is being understated. Now, it's about 500 mils of, you know, so half a liter of perfume. Now, remember, Judah said that it was about a year's worth wages. I don't know how many of us are in construction here. How much would you pay? A laborer, for a laborer here, was an, you know, it's an agrarian society. So it was on the farm. But I suppose um, if you're having laborers on your, um, on your construction site, maybe, what, 2,000, 2,005? Maybe a day. Yes, 2,005 a day. So think about 2,005 and multiply it by 300 days. What do you have? 750,000. So think of a 500, not up to one liter, half a liter of bottle of perfume. And it will cost about 750000 Hands up if you ever spend $750,000 on, a, on, a, on, a, on a, a, a bottle of perfume here. Hands up. Come on. And I'll be checking your tithe very soon. <laughs> but the point is, it is extremely expensive. It's expensive because of its origin. It was from India. No, it was from India. The process, he it said, it's very pure there. So no impurities whatsoever. And then the quantity is mil. But this is highly expensive. And then she did something further. She cleaned Jesus' feet. She cleaned Jesus' feet. Now, in that culture, to clean someone's feet was left for the lowest ranking member in a household. Quite often, it would not even be a child of the person there. It would be a slave that would actually do that. This is why, as we'll see next week in chapter 13, this prefigured what Jesus actually did when he cleaned his disciples' feet. That Jesus, uh, uh, Peter was like, please don't do that to me. It was the utter show of the basement. But she did not even use a rag to do this. She used her hair. So she broke this perfume. She cleaned his feet and she used the feet to clean, did she use her hair to clean his feet, not a rag. Now this woman, Mary, was displaying utter devotion and debasement. And there are two things or three things I want us to, well, let me say two things for for, that I want us to see here about her humility. And we'll contrast it with a few, with, with Judas that is there. Humble people aren't, before I get to the uh, the two things, humble people, what we can see here, now we don't know whether she's extremely wealthy or she's not, but she's at least somebody of some kind of standing. But humble people, unlike proud people, aren't preoccupied with themselves. I mean, just look at the scene. She obviously was not thinking about herself. And this actually then flows into two Things I want us to see from her. One is that humility makes us very grateful. What this woman is doing, this expression of devotion to Jesus, is obviously in response to something she believes that Jesus has done for her. There is something about the person of Jesus in her life, and she feels that at this moment, this Jesus, spending this amount for Jesus, really doesn't matter. Sometimes when you're in love with someone, do, you know, there are things that you do sometimes that are over the top. You say, well, this is my wife, I love her so much, I don't care how much I'm going to spend on her. I'm sure the wives are saying, yo, here, preach, preacher. <laughs> oh, this my husband is so fantastic that, you know what, I don't care how long it takes for me to cook that particular meal that he likes. Baby, are you getting the hint? <laughs> but sometimes we do go over the top in response to love. But if you are proud, you cannot even actually receive what that person has done for you. You start making excuses. Excuses like, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? That's fine. You may think, in Judas's case, he has a strong point. There's a big point there. And don't we do that often, many times? Okay, so we're going through a recession now. The moment you see maybe we're throwing a particular ceremony for a particular thing, say, why did they do that thing? Couldn't they sell all of that and actually give to the masses? I mean, you know many times that is true. But we're talking about Jesus here. We're talking about the one she loved here. Judas's greed is actually being masked as though he's being altruistic. And it's amazing the ability that sin has to morph itself. He's a thief, but he's now displaying that as though he's actually thinking of the poor when he really isn't. Which takes us to the second point. Or maybe I should go back uh, one step. I said humility makes us grateful, but there's another side to that. Some of us, actually, it's not about giving thanks. It's about not, the ability not to actually be thanked. Have you ever seen that before? I give, maybe Shino comes to my house, and Shino gives me something, right? Oh, no, no, let me turn that around. I give Shino something, and, oh, I'm, I'm quite confused. Shino, I'm trying to make you the good person in this story. <laughs> Shino gives me something. Oh, gosh. I give something to Shino. I give something to Shino. And Shino says, thank you. Oh, yes, finally. Shino is trying to thank me. Ah, no, 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 there's no need. I'm like, no, no, really, I really appreciate you. You don't have to talk about it. You don't have to talk. What's the problem? Am I beneath receiving thanks? Or quite often, this is what it is. I gave Shino that thing because Shino had actually given me something before. You know, we know this in our Yoruba culture, right? Somebody comes for your party, right? They bring a gift. I say, <laughs> Faye them. They gave us, uh, uh, maybe, you know, gift has to be cash. That's what we need. Faye gave us 10K. Okay, good, 10K. Um, then after that, Kemi, ah, Kemi gave us 50K. Whoa, all right. So they came for a party. Faye is now coming. She now has a party. So what do we do? We have enough money. We have hundred thousand to give. What did Faye give us before? Hundred k We'll give her eleven. And so when she wants to thank you for the thing, it's not about thank you, is you give me, you gave to me, so I also give to you. You can't receive the gift for what the gift is, because it says something may be demeaning about you that you're receiving gift from someone, so you have to return it to the other person. The ability not to think or the ability not to be thanked is a sign of pride. Sometimes you actually just feel like, oh, these people gave us something, so we have to find a way of paying them back. No. Why not just receive the thanks in gratitude? Second thing that humility does is it makes us sacrificially generous. It makes us sacrificially generous. Now, consider the cost of the perfume and what she eventually used it for. It's 500 mil. 500 mil. Last time I traveled, I saw a bumper deal. I've never seen this kind of deal before. My favorite perfume, I saw 300 mil of it, 300 mil. I bought it at a cut price. I can't, I can't, I can't tell you what it was. But I can assure you, I am not buying any perfume for the next two years, or maybe two and a half, self. 300 mils. And then this woman, what does she do with 500 mils? She just breaks it and just wipes Jesus' legs, his feet. There's something, this woman is not just generous, she's extravagantly generous. There's something about the way she's appreciated Jesus Christ that is so extravagant and obviously is quite sacrificial. Are we extravagant in our giving? Now, I want to say that quite pointedly. Many of us here I know will not subscribe. In fact, many of the things we we hate to see is that, quote, unquote, man of God that is always trying to manipulate you for the next available naira and trying to get you to give more and more and more and more, commanding a blessing that is going to come. True. And we should hate and deplore that kind of thing. That kind of manipulation in the church, that is something that the Lord hates. He's not only angry about it; he's very sad about it. But in trying to avoid that kind of thinking, do we also then swing the pendulum to the other screen, to the other side? Do we go to the other extreme with our own giving? Are we the kind of people that I told you I was once part of a church where it's a church of extremely, you know, well-to-do people, but every time we got to the end of the year. Well, towards two, two, two months to the end of the year, we're always far, far away from uh, meeting our budget, um, 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 the expectations in giving. So you know what will happen? We'll have a particular giving Sunday so that we can close up the gap. And guess what happens? Usually, oh, is it 20,000 pounds that's remaining? All right, fine. We give 20,000 pounds, but we are not about, nobody wants to see a surplus. Or are you the kind of person that says, You know, we have to keep the church leaders uh, accountable. So where was that money spent? Why was that one put there? Why wasn't, and sometimes I find that the people that want to keep the church leaders most accountable are the ones that give the least. You see, there is a fine line between trying to be prudent and then being stingy. That's what Judas shows us. Or are you the kind of person that says, well, Yeah, it's true. It's true. We should give. We should give. But you only give when you remember. Like, oh, you don't forget to go to work every day. You don't forget to drop your children at school. You don't forget to pay your children's school fees. But you know, when it comes to giving to the church, you know, we're not under the law. We're not under the law. You know, it's not about tithing. And then we go in the other direction. Well, the question is this. If you had this kind of grace under the law, how much more the grace that is under the New Testament? Oh, but this can be legalism, really. You see, the Bible in the New Testament does not specify to us what we should give. True. But it demands for us to specify to ourselves what we should give. I'll say that again. The Bible in the New Testament doesn't say you must give a tenth of your income to the church. But it demands that you actually make that decision and you keep a vow to it. Now, I say this is very, very important, especially for us here as a church. City Church, as many of us know, we do pray for all the givers that give. The only reason why we stand and we exist today here, apart from um, some of us that are very generous here, the only reason we are here today is because of the extreme generosity of many other churches that are not even in this country. They give to us so lavishly. Now, why do they give to us? I can assure you it's not because they're just like myself. They give to us largely because they've been touched by the grace of Christ. And they want, out of the overflowing of that grace of Christ, want to see that grace being shared to other countries and other people. And so do you know what they do? They sacrificially give. Some of the churches that give to us are not very well to do, but they give. Are we going to be inspired by that? Not just inspired by their own example, but inspired by what inspires them. Inspired by what inspired Mary. Are you extravagant in your giving? And I'm very, very directly making that as a challenge to us. Not just the regularity. You have to be regular, but consider the amount. Again, I'm not specifying this. You know that we don't talk about this often here in this church. But it's a big deal. Why? Because Jesus says where your treasure is, there also is your heart. An indication of where your heart truly is, is what you do with your money. And Mary is showing us that if it doesn't hurt, if it doesn't hurt you, if if there are not things in your life that you are unable to do because you are giving, then you are not giving enough. You should be able to say, I could do this and I could do this and I could do this, but I can't do it because I am giving to all of these things if you've been truly touched by the grace of Christ. So I want us to consider that how we spend. It is a hallmark of humility because stingy people are too preoccupied with this particular need, 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 need. Every want eventually becomes a need. So that brings me to my third point. Or maybe I'll just say one more thing. Part of the problem with money is this. Let's face it. When our bank accounts are a bit larger and larger, we feel secure. You know, every woman knows this. When the man has not been paid, it's getting towards the end of the month. The guy starts getting angry. All of a sudden, you get paid. The man is just so happy. You're just moving all around. Why? Because we find our security in the things that we have. And if you're finding your security in money, guess who you're not finding your security in? Yeah, God. Now, I'm not advocating a kind of um, carelessness or irresponsibility. Of course not. But I am advocating sacrifice, regularity, and keeping a vow to God. And don't come with me and say, well, what if I give? I, I don't just give here. I also give outside. I'm saying you should give both. Amen? Amen? All right, so I'm sure now you want me to really translate to my third point. I shall. All right, let's translate to the third point. Humility vindicated. Now remember I said that the hallmark of humility is self-awareness. That is, what do you know about yourself? When Jesus says you should hate yourself, he's saying there must be something about yourself that you should know that actually should not make you so big up about yourself. Now, how would you know that if you don't have a reference? What do I mean by that? You need to be able to compare yourself with a particular thing that you then measure and say, this is perfect, and I need to actually move towards that. So for instance, those who are in construction will tell you this. If you put a wall up there, you want to see how straight the wall is. So what do you use? Use a plumb line, right? The plumb line is meant to be straight. And so when you measure the the straightness of the wall in reference to that, if it's actually aligned with it, then that wall is straight. We always need a reference. If we don't have a universal objective or standard to which we should judge ourselves, how can we truly accurately know ourselves? Now, I want to quote a particular song for us. It's a very, very popular Nigerian gospel song. Now, I have to first say this. I like the song, all right? I'm questioning the theology of the song, but I like the song. I was still buzzing on the song yesterday. But I want us to think about this. It says this. We are a chosen generation called for to show His excellence. All I require for life, God has given me, and I know who I am. So we want to check, do do we really know who I am? and Is this actually leading us to the best way of knowing ourselves? I'm walking in power. I'm walking in miracles. I live a life of favor because I know who I am. I am holy. I am righteous. I am so rich. I am Beautiful take a look at me, I'm a wonder. It doesn't matter what you see now. Can you see his glory? Because I know who I am. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Mary's posture in front of Jesus could reflect the words in this song? Are you moved to wash Jesus' feet or probably moved to put your shoulder up when you're singing this song? Pop your collar a little bit. A little bit of a spring in your steps. You see, if the universal standard is Jesus, and for Mary, don't forget, she wasn't doing this for any of the disciples. She was actually doing what she did with Jesus. It was because of what she knew about Jesus and her own comparison with Jesus, she truly knew who she was. And where she belonged was at his feet, washing his feet. Now, the big question that comes in here is this. If we compare ourselves with Jesus, not only should our egos be totally deflated, quite frankly, who can measure up to Jesus? We feel condemned. When we put ourselves against the standard that is Jesus Christ, we know we can't measure up, and so we don't feel like we can get out of it. We actually feel like we are condemned. And yet, in verse 25b to 26, it says, if whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life, whoever sells me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will be, my father will honor the one who sells me. There is yet a vindication for being humble. How does that come? If I am humble, I will be honored by the father, I will have eternal life. But when you say that humility is in comparison with Jesus, there's no way I can get that. I'm actually condemned. So who is going to deliver us? out of this mess. How is it that what John or what Jesus says that John has recorded about eternal life and God's honor, how does that come to us? Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter all these things we've said if we are left here condemned. Well, that brings us to this part in the story. In verse 20 to 22, notice that Jesus had always been ministering to Jews and at this particular turning point, Greeks came to meet him. They wanted to see him. Now, we don't have any record that Jesus actually spoke to them. But this thing where the Greeks or the Gentiles started to seek him triggered something. Look at verse, 20, uh, verse 23. It says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be what? Glorified. Notice that the hour. Where have we seen that hour before? In John 2, verse 4, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. In John, 2 verse, uh, John 7, verse 30, at this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because it, his hour had not yet come. John 8, verse 20, he spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And yet, there's something different here now. What does he say? The hour has come. The hour has come. The hour has come for what? The hour has come for Jesus to be glorified. Oh, glory. Glory is coming, obviously. So if he's going to be glorified now, everyone is going to see Jesus for the great person that he is. But not Really? What does he say after? He says, except, eventually I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The place of the ultimate glory of Jesus Christ was the place of his utter humiliation. You see, at this point now, Jesus' going to the cross is actually very, very near. When we say that we are comparing ourselves with the humility of Jesus, it's not just the fact that Jesus was not preoccupied with himself. Yes, he wasn't preoccupied with himself. We see that in John 5.30. He he wasn't seeking to please himself, but he was seeking to please his father. But it was much more than that. It was that the one who actually should receive all glory and honor was actually nailed to a cross as one who receive shame. And the comparison is not just the comparison on the cross, but in this, the place of our condemnation for not measuring up with Jesus, God punished him on the cross. Jesus is not asking you to be humble, to earn your salvation and earn eternal life. No, he's saying because he was humbled, he was obedient to death, even to death on the cross. Now, not only has God highly exalted him, he has enabled more seeds to also come, except a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies that abides alone. But if it dies, it bears more fruit. I'm saying don't prove yourself to be humble to earn something. No, because you have been given much, now walk as someone who is humble. Mary did not prove to Jesus Christ that she was humble and therefore Jesus should give her eternal life, but it is because of what she had received from Jesus that she was responding in humility. You see, this is unique about Christian Christian humility. In the studies I showed you, you know, the very funny thing about it is it's very pragmatic. If the psychological study is saying, well, you are going to get physical benefits and mental benefits if you are humble, guess what it's doing? It's still making you preoccupied with yourself. You are not being humble for the sake of the other person. You are being humble, what, for yourself. And in the business studies, are also saying that, look, it will pay your business eventually, and you'll be an effective leader if you are humble. Who is at the center of it? It's still yourself. But if you are humble, Because you follow someone who, through the sacrifice that showed his utter humility, he saved you. Then what is too much to give away for him? You see, this is why as Christians, if we are truly following Jesus Christ, we don't find it difficult to admit our mistakes. Because the greatest mistake we've ever made was to reject God. But Christ has paid for that. So why are you trying to protect As Christians, we are not scared to be generous because what can you receive that is greater than eternal life? So why are you holding on to this? As I said, it's not enough to be a follower of our Lord by just donning his cap. You have to follow his example and you have to adhere to what he says. It's not enough to call yourself a Christian just because you come to church. Are you willing to die to yourself, to hate your life, so that you don't lose it in this life or the life to come? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you again for your word. We thank you that it brings grace to the simple. We thank you that it lifts us up. And we just pray that you really humble our hearts here so that in due time you will lift us up. Help us to be sacrificial followers. And if the message has hit us at any place that we know we need to conform, then give us the grace through your spirit to do this. We ask all this through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray.
1: Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church,
0: visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church Love Jesus Love people, love Lagos.